Good evening. It's Monday, September 25th, and you are in for a treat. The next voice you will hear is that of Pastor Kayla Robinson with the theme, Reclaim. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Lovely to see you all. Let me see if I can put this here. Oh, we have cards. Let's see. Would someone pass these out? And if you want, fill it out. If not, you can leave them in the pew. We want to make sure that everyone uh, receive, receives one. And if you have a prayer request, we want to pray for you. Um, every morning, the pastors that are doing the evangelistic series throughout Florida, we, we call each other every morning at 9 a.m. and we pray for anyone who's um, requested prayer requests. So if you have a prayer request, please fill one out and I can assure you it will be prayed over. So, all right. <clears throat> So Saturday we talked about the great book and how we can trust that it is historically reliable and that it has that it was breathed by God and so that it is trustworthy that it is the word of God truly. And then Sunday we talked about uh, Saturday night we talked about how uh was it Saturday or Sunday? Sorry, I forgot. Sunday, we talked about how God chases after us, right? And so he set it up the tabernacle among the people. And was that Saturday night? Okay. So he, he set this tabernacle among his people because he wanted to give everyone equal access to him and wanted to live among the people. And then we talked about how Jesus went and searched out, this was last night, we searched out the Samaritan woman and went out of his way to make sure that she knew that she was loved and that he saw her and uh, would do anything just to have a conversation with her. So tonight... We are going to talk about reclaiming our hearts. And uh, this is another famous story, I guess, from the Bible, if you can call it that. But we'll get to that in a minute. I read an article in the New York Times that talked about two women. And you probably read this, too. This uh, was back in 2006. Two women who were dressed in white, and they stood at a corner in a street, and they were summoning people to come and unburden their souls. They had a sign on a stained glass that read, Air Your Dirty Laundry. (laughs) 100% confidential, anonymous, and free. How's that? For an invitation. And then to those who stopped, he, she handed a clipboard with a blank sheet of paper where this person could write anything, any secret 
that probably we're holding on to for years. So anything from executives to street people to tourists, hundreds and hundreds of people stop to write down their secrets, and then they would seal them in an envelope and gave them to one of these uh, ladies in white, and then the other lady would just paint a picture of the person. So once the person was well out of sight, this lady would open this letter and then she would post it on a glass which was in front of a store. And then she would post the, the portrait next to it. So then the people that came behind would read the secrets of those who had come before them. And then they would also have this happen to them as well. They were... Anything from silly to serious confessions. Like, I think one read, The hermit crap was still alive when I threw it down the trash chute. One read. Another said, I am dating a married man. While another simply read, I have AIDS. By the end of the day, the glass was entirely covered with messages of guilt and shame and regret. Many of us today are hiding. We may carry on a normal daily life, but inside there are things we wish we could share with others, whether it's regret from past choices or things we continually fall for. There was an ancient king, and his name was David. And he found himself in a similar situation. I think had he walked by these two ladies in white, he probably would have been one of those people who wrote down a secret on those papers. He was rich. He was powerful. Smart and even considered godly. At his disposal, he had access to whatever he desired one snap of his finger and he had any food, any women, any servant, anything he could ever want. King David was also considered a mighty warrior. You remember that before when King uh, Saul was still in the, in the uh, reign, that he was considered one of the greatest in the Israelite army. While everyone killed hundreds, David killed thousands and ten thousands. So good was he that Saul was jealous of him and wanted him dead. So now is his turn to be king. And once again, his people were at war with the Ammonites. By this time, David had reigned for about 12 years. And so somehow throughout this time span, he had become soft and self-indulgent. The Bible says that it was springtime. It was time for kings to go out and fight wars. Because winters were just too cold for war. He should have been in the battlefield with his people. But instead he chose to send others to do his job. So let's see what 2 Samuel 11.1 says. It describes the story as such. It happened in the spring of the year. At the time when kings go out to battle, 
that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroy the people of Ammon and besiege Rabbah. And now listen to this. But David remained at Jerusalem. So we notice right away, it's springtime, which meant time for kings to go out to fight. It's part of the job description, and David knew this very well. But David chooses to send his army general to fight instead and let him deal with the mess. And so they end up doing well without David. However, the writer here is very careful to note something seems out of place, but ends up being the centerpiece of the story. And so the writer adds a very important conjunction here. But, he writes, David remained in Jerusalem. There's nothing like a good suspense movie, right? Now, remember Jurassic Park or something like that where, where you have dinosaurs chasing people? And now the, the writers of the story are preparing you for something that's coming, but they don't want you to hate the writer of the story, so they start sending you hints of what's coming because once that person dies, they don't want you to go, okay, I can't watch this anymore, right? So they start telling you this person is just making foolish decisions, so he deserves to die, right? Or that person is just not going the right direction, even though you're screaming at the, the screen, and so they deserve to write. So the writers are careful to do this so that when the thing that you know is coming finally happens, you don't hate the movie. I always think about that when I read this passage. From the get-go, the prophet Samuel, who is the one writing the story, is preparing the reader for something that's about to go down. It is about to get really ugly. And the writer is telling you, Something is going to happen, and it won't be good. And it all started with one bad choice. David remained in Jerusalem when he should have been fighting alongside his people. He forfeited his kingship duties to Joab and took a vacation instead. While his people are dying on the battlefield, David's taking baths on the rooftop. While others are giving marching orders, the king takes naps at the palace. He was at the wrong place at the wrong time. And that is usually where bad decisions go even worse. This one seemingly small decision to remain in Jerusalem led to some of the gravest choices and one of the darkest seasons of his life. So now that he relinquished his duties and no longer has to go fight his people's battles, all of a sudden his schedule opens up. Everyone who needed him was in the battlefield. There were no staff meetings, no briefings, no updates, no one-on-one with the army general, no audiences to tend to. He is free as a bird. One night, He can't sleep. 
And this is another side effect of bad choices, right? He's tossing and turning in bed until he finally gets up. And he makes his way up to the rooftop. And my gut tells me that he is feeling regretful about his decision to stay home. He knew where he needed to be, so he is pacing back and forth on the rooftop, most likely because the guilt and maybe even the shame was too strong for him to handle. All of a sudden, his eyes fall upon a gorgeous, naked woman who just so happens to be in the middle of a nice warm bath. Her name was Bathsheba, and she definitely caught the king's eye. David lusted after this woman, could not take his eyes off of her. Another bad choice. And that was the beginning in a series of unfortunate events that took place that night. He should have walked away. He knew better. But the attraction was just too strong, and he was already in a weakened, self-indulgent state of mind. So we all know the story, right? David asked around the palace to see who she is and finds out not only that she is the wife of Uriah, a man he respected and was also fighting a battle for him, but also that she came from a long line of men that David greatly admired. At this point, none of that mattered to him. His eye was on the prey, and he calls for the woman to be brought to him, sleeps with her, satisfies his lust, and sends her home. He very naively thinks that the matter is behind him that everything is done and he can move on. So he doesn't even give it another thought. Now let me pause here and talk about Bathsheba for a second. Did she have fault in this? I think so. Should she have been bathing on the rooftop where everyone could see her? Probably not. And did she holler and scream and put up a fight when the king summoned her? No, she didn't. But there's probably a chance that she did not hate catching the eye of the king. But regardless of that, David knew better. David was the one in power. And David had better judgment than that. He had the power and he abused it. At this point, he is not listening to God. At this point, he is only listening to his lustful desires. Now, here come the consequences because they always are. A few weeks later, David is probably feeling really good about himself. They're probably even tapping himself in the back, thinking, I got away with this. Maybe even mentally preparing for the next time he would have her over. No one would even know. But all hell breaks loose when he receives a tiny little note with a giant of a message. I'm pregnant. 
sign B. Oh, he knew very well who that was. This should have been the moment that sent David straight to his knees to ask God for forgiveness and help in order to deal with this mess he created. But did he? Instead, he attempts to hide the problem even more. Mm. He thinks, well, if I bring Uriah home from the battle, he could spend the night with his wife. I'm sure he misses her. This is a no-brainer. No one would even suspect who the baby daddy is. But it all backfired once again and blew up in David's face when Uriah refused to lower his own standards. It was customary at the time, and even when David was a young man, that men would not have relations with their spouses during wartime. And this was out of respect to God and the other men who were still in the battlefield. So Uriah received this tempting, pun intended, invitation to take a few days to relax. Take it easy. Go home. Lower your standards a little bit. No one will know. To this, he responds, The ark, Israel, and Judah are living in tents at this very moment. How could I go home and enjoy myself when they're suffering? So now the plot thickens a little more, and David is faced with a few options here. Okay, so men up, confess, accept the consequences. Seems pretty logical, right? Except he chooses the next option, which is uh, panic, create another cover-up by killing Uriah. At this point, we may be tempted to start counting David's sin one by one and calling them by name. But the truth is, David's sin started a long time before this story even began. When we read this passage, it reassures us because we feel so good about ourselves. We would never, would never lost after another man or woman. And we would never cheat on our spouse. And we certainly would never kill another human being. And so we're tempted to say, if God forgives David, then he certainly can forgive me of, you know, my loose tongue. My sin seems so insignificant compared to an obvious giant like murder. But here's the bottom line. Sin is not an event or an action. Sin is a condition of the heart. And the reason David committed all those atrocities was because he stopped listening to God's voice. Sin is not an action the same way that brain cancer is not a bad headache. A headache may be a side effect of brain cancer, but it is not the root of the problem. We tend to think of sin as a singular event, murder, loose tongue, lust, self-indulgent, greed. And those are certainly the result of sin, but they are not the definition of it. Sin at its core is 
anything that separates us from God. Sin is cancer of the heart, and the only treatment for that is the blood of Jesus Christ. And David demonstrated a lack of self-control his entire life. And when his attention was not on God, he certainly fell for it. The Bible mentions eight of his wives by name. But 2 Samuel 5.13 tells us that he took many more women and, and concubines. Lusting after flesh was one of David's lifelong struggles. In fact, he passed it on to his son, didn't he? He was separated from God and his will for his life. And the more separated that David became from God, the more likely he was to fall to temptation. He knew the commandments. This is something he's been read to. Deuteronomy 5.21, even as a child he heard this, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That was read to David, even as a child. This is not new to him. So there was no excuse to his behavior other than separation from God. This time he had tangled himself into such a mess and he had strayed so far from God that he couldn't even see the mess he was in. He was out of control. So several months later, and knock at the door, God had to send the prophet Nathan to pay David a little visit. He had to send Nathan because David just was not listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. It was clear that David was in need of an audible rebuke from God because he was not paying attention to anything else. And this took incredible courage on behalf of prophet Nathan because he knew very well the frame of mind that David was in. He knew David was willing to go to the very extreme of murder to cover up his sin. And poor Nathan always had to be the bearer of bad news. The first time we see them interacting in scripture, Nathan has to tell the, the king that he is not the one that's going to build the temple. His son is going to do that. And so now he gets the privilege of telling the king about his sin. Lucky, right? And I can just picture them. They're sitting on the balcony, maybe sharing a few fr uh, fresh figs, sipping on wine, talking about some pleasantries about the town and the people, the weather. But then Nathan gets serious. He knows. He knows what he came to do. So he astutely breaks the ice with this story found in 2 Samuel 12. He starts, David, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And he grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the warefaring men who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the men who had come to him. And I imagine there's a moment of silence. And David heard this, and he was furious. I imagine he pushed the table away and stood to his feet and punched the table with his fist, Fakes flying everywhere. He says, who is this person? He will surely die, but not before he pays back fourfold for what he has taken. So Nathan just looks at him for a moment. And he says, you are that man. So now Nathan grows a little louder and a little stronger. And he says, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I anointed you king of Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wife into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. So through this, Nathan is reminding, he's reminding him that God is saying, when is enough enough? The root of the problem here is that you have been ungrateful, David. You've been greedy and you've been selfish. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. It just got very real for David, didn't it? Here God pronounces the sin out loud. Because no one had done it. God does not allow David to blame anyone but himself for his own sin. He cannot hide anymore. This is not a secret anymore. It is all out in the open. And then God promises there will be some pretty serious consequences coming his way. His children will be a mess. And there will be violence in his house for the rest of his, his life. Just like David demanded fourfold payment for this hypothetical man in Nathan's story, now God is demanding fourfold payment 
from David. And this will come as he watches his four children with Bathsheba suffer and bicker for the rest of their lives. David brought chaos to another man's house. And so now chaos will come to his. But this, this is what it took for David to finally see the light. His heart now begins to soften to God's chastisement. What have I done? What have I done, he finally says. I have sinned against God. Now let's pause here for a second. Because David killed Uriah. He stole Bathsheba. He lied to everyone and manipulated others into covering his actions. But what he says here is extremely profound. In that moment, David recognized that you can mistreat others. You can hurt people. You can abuse your power and manipulate individuals into doing whatever it is you want. But you can only sin against God. And the reason for that is because God and only God can forgive sins. Not a pastor. Not a priest. Not your mom and certainly not your dad. Only God has the power to forgive sins. So Nathan's response to David is the same response that God has for you today. The Lord also has put away your sin. See, forgiveness does not mean no consequences. But forgiveness always comes when we ask and when we truly repent and acknowledge that we have separated ourselves from God. David's story reminds us of several things. Several things. One, sin is a condition of the heart. The actions are not the root of the problem. So if we focus on the action, we have missed the point. So dealing with the actions will not solve the problem. Sin, number two, separates us from God. The more separated we are from God, the harder it is to see our sinful condition. The only way to solve sin is to acknowledge our separation from God. And the only solution to sin is to draw closer to God. Number three, sometimes God has to send other people our way to remind us of our present condition because our vision is just too cloudy. And four, yes, God will forgive you. No, God has not written you off. He always forgives, always. So now David can clearly see where he went wrong and begins to pour his heart out to God in the most beautiful letter ever written. And it is found in Psalm 51. Have mercy 
on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquities. Verse 3 and 4 says, For I acknowledge my transgression. And this is an incredibly significant moment for David. For I acknowledge. There is that that, um, moment where he confessed. For I acknowledge my transgression. Against you, you only have I sinned. Get that? Not against Bathsheba. He heard her. Against God he sinned. Now verses 10 and 11, he realizes the only way he can move forward and keep from sinning is if God creates a new heart within him. He says, renew, reintroduce a steadfast and unwavering spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, O Lord. Do not give up on me. And please, oh please, don't take your spirit away from me. The king before David, Saul, he too had a lot of shortcomings, didn't he? He had many moments where he disobeyed God. Yet David, in spite of his many mistakes, is called a man after God's own heart. And why is that? The difference is David was able to realize that it is God and God alone who has the power to renew our lives, our souls, and forgive us from our sin. King Saul did not do that. And he died separated from God. God is the only one who can perform heart surgery. And he is the only one that can give us an unwavering spirit. An unwavering spirit that will forever keep our eyes on him. I pray that will be our constant desire. That we will ask God to completely Renew, change, create, start from scratch in our hearts. That it will continually keep our eyes in his direction. So that when we fall, we know to come back to him. That we know, to, we know who to go for renewal and for strength. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners. We acknowledge that we need you every moment of the day, Father, that without you, it is a given that we will fall. And so tonight, we pray for courage to walk closer to you, Lord, that we will continually have our eyes on you. 
May our prayer be, Lord, that you will create a new heart in us, perform heart surgery, that we will constantly search your guidance, that we will constantly search your will to be done in our lives. We need you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.